Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're studying through the first three chapters of the very last book of the New Testament, God's revelation of himself, really the revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory. And we're in chapter two, so I invite your attention there. Revelation chapter two, verses 18 through 29, our text this morning, the message to the church at Thyatira. As you're turning there, uh, gives me a chance to comment on the scripture that Gregory Baines read just a moment ago. Jesus said that a wise man is one who hears the words of Christ and puts them into practice, that is, he obeys them. And that really is why we study the Bible. It's certainly why we're studying the first three chapters of Revelation. These are, in fact, the words of Jesus to seven literal historical churches there in Asia Minor. But they have um, teaching for all of us today. Every epic of history faces the same and similar challenges as these seven churches did 2,000 years ago, and a wise person, a wise Christian, and a wise church will be those who hear the words and, and takes more than a passing interest. Uh, I think you all know I, I love the subject of history. In fact, just yesterday I was browsing some videos online of some famous battles, and as I watched the strategy of those generals unfold, I had a passing interest in that, but it really didn't impact my life too much. When we study historical narrative in the Bible, it is for the purpose of change, either to encourage us to keep doing what we're doing right or to rebuke us and call us to repent of what we're doing wrong, that is sin. And that really is what we find here in Christ's message to the church at Thyatira. They had some things they were doing very well. Uh, Jesus says they continue in doing those things. On the other hand, there was one glaring sin that was among them that they had failed to deal with. And so he rebukes them rather harshly for that. And he calls all of us to watch out for that same temptation. So let's read our text. Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you Nevertheless, what you, have, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. 
as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The church at Thyatira. Well, Thyatira, the city, was very different than the other churches we've studied so far, like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. All three of those cities were large. They were beautiful. They were thriving with commerce. There was a lot of wealth in those cities, a lot of pagan temples. But the city of Thyatira was different. It was off the beaten path. It was much smaller, for one, had a smaller population. It was lesser known. In fact, many historians viewed it as rather insignificant. And I think that tells us a number of things about the Lord and his church. There are no insignificant places or people with the Lord. God has his people everywhere, doesn't he? It's amazing to me as I travel in this country and abroad uh, that uh, wherever you go, you can find some of God's people there. Um, here, here's something else I think of note as we think of Thyatira. Wherever God is at work, whether in bustling urban areas or in rural areas, Satan opposes God's work, doesn't he? And we see that very clearly here in our text today. Now, Thyatira, um, there's no mention in the Bible about how this church was formed. Uh, unlike many of the others, like Ephesus in the book of Acts, it's likely, I think, that some of the disciples of the Apostle Paul, from the time that he spent in Ephesus, went out into these rural regions and lesser known regions like Thyatira and probably established these churches. But we simply don't know. Although there is a very clear mention of the church, uh, excuse me, the city of Thyatira in the book of Acts. So just hold your place there in Revelation 2 and backtrack just a little bit to come to the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is historical narrative. It was written by Paul's physician, a man by the name of Luke. And it is written from a historian's perspective. And in Luke chapter, excuse me, in Acts chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 11, we are introduced in the Bible to the city of Thyatira, if only in passing. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Remember that the Apostle Paul had designs on taking the gospel to Asia, but the Holy Spirit was preventing him, telling him, no, it's not time for that. Until ultimately Paul had a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia which is modern day Greece. And what did that man say? He said, come over and help us. And so verse 11 says, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace on the day following at Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So Philippi was named for Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so did you know that the first convert to Christianity on the continent of Europe was a woman from Thyatira who had traveled to Philippi to conduct business. And her business was that she dealt in this purple dye, which was what the city of Thyatira was most known for. If the city of Ephesus, the city of Pergamon and Smyrna were white collar type cities, Thyatira was more blue collar and they had industry. And their leading industry was this 
making of this purple dye. They would take some seashells and some roots that they had found and mix it together and made this gorgeous purple dye and they traded it all over the world. And so uh, there had emerged from this industrial base a system of trade guilds, sort of like trade unions. And, and to really have a job and be able to make a living in the city of Thyatira, you had to be a part of one of these trade guilds. Now, here's the thing about these trade guilds. They were based in pagan practices. Each one of these trade guilds had a patron god, little g, to which they made sacrifices and they held debaucherous parties several times a year. And keep that in your mind because that's going to be very important as we talk about the church. So let's go back to our text. Revelation chapter two, verse 18. And the first thing that we see is the omniscient author. Now you know that Jesus is really the author of all seven of these letters. And so he addresses the church. He says to the angel, that is the pastor and the church at Thyatira, write the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. So right away, we know it's not a friendly greeting. He's coming as God. Now, in other passages of Scripture, he uses his favorite designation of himself, which is son of man. That is, he identifies with humanity. There's a sympathy there. But when he comes to Thyatira, he says, I'm coming as the son of God. I'm coming to judge. And he says, I have a, eyes like a flame of fire. Now, now, the Bible speaks often of the eyes of God roaming about, right? He sees everything. That, that's what the word omniscient means. He sees and knows all. But then he describes his feet. They're like burnished bronze, which is the purest of alloys. And so here we find uh, that image of Jesus' feet, uh, that, that image of him treading out the grapes of wrath with those feet of judgment. So this is a letter of judgment. But because he is so gracious and he's so kind, before he brings the rod, he is honest and says, look, there's some things going here that are good. And so this letter is from the omniscient author who is Jesus, but it is to a duplicitous recipient. Uh, duplicitous simply means two-faced. Remember we said that uh, some of these churches were trying to have it both ways. They want to have one foot in the world, still making a living and, and still being thought of well in the community and, and one foot in the church. And the Bible calls us to that clear line of demarcation. In fact, the scripture says fellowship with the world is enmity with God, that you can't be on God's side and be on the side of the world. And so here was a church that was trying to do that. So they were duplicitous. In fact, the book of James, James talked about even in our prayer life, we can't be duplicitous. We can't be too minded. Don't expect you'll have your prayers answered if you're too minded about the things of God. And so he begins in verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. Now that's the phrase we find in each of these letters. I know. Here is the omniscient Lord who knows everything about them saying, I have observed you. And, and the, the first four or five things he says about them are good things. He says, I observed your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. Here's words of commendation. So, so overall he says, I've seen your actions. That is good and bad. And then he describes their good actions. First of all, he says, your actions are motivated by love. Remember, that was what was lacking in the church at Ephesus. For all the good things that were going in the church of Ephesus, sound doctrine, they were opposing false teachers, they were doing a lot of good things, they were busy, they were active, but they had lost their first love. Well, not so in the church at Thyatira. 
Not only were they busy and active, they still were fanning that flame of love for the Lord. In fact, he says, I've noted your faith. You're not afraid to take on challenging things in the name of the Lord. You trust the Lord. You're serving. I take that serving the needs of the less fortunate. You're serving the needs of one another and of the community. And then he says, your perseverance. He knows and he notes that there is pressure coming from the lost world against them. And yet they have continued to meet as a church. They've continued to name the name of Christ. In fact, they seem to be growing as opposed to some of these other churches. He says, your deeds of late, that is recently, are greater than at the first. You are making progress and maybe they're even growing numerically. Now, this is a church in our modern evangelical world that we'd hold up and say, be like this. Look, they're growing. They're doing a lot of good things. Well, that's only the first part of their deeds. Now look at verse 20. Here's the second part. This is what makes them duplicitous. But, there's that word again, isn't it? But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, what is going on here? Remember I said that they have these trade guilds, and each one of these trade guilds has uh, a patron god. And I think you put all of that information together about the city of Thyatira, and we can make an educated guess about who Jezebel is and what's going on in her. First of all, like as he referenced to Balaam and Balak last week, you have to have a knowledge of the Old Testament, don't you, to understand who Jezebel is. So if you go back to 1 Kings in your mind, you remember that the king was Ahab. And against the clear prohibition from God, he made alliances with the Gentiles, a group of people called the Phoenicians, who were known for their immorality and their pagan practices. And the way he sought to strengthen the alliance with the Phoenician king was by marrying his daughter. That's what you did in those days. And, and you merged those two kingdoms together through marriage. And the king of Phoenicia's daughter was named Jezebel. And she was a sight to behold. So when Jezebel came to Israel, not only did she bring her maids and her wealth, she also brought her religion. And her religion was Baal. That's the God that she worshiped. Baal was a really equivalent to worshiping Satan today. And she brought in hundreds, hundreds of her priests of Baal from the outside. And Ahab, I guess, thought that somehow they could meld these two diametrically opposed cultures together and somehow work to get along. But that's not how it works. You remember what God told them before he let them go into the promised land led by Joshua. He said, do not intermarry with these Gentile people. They'll ruin you. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Rather than Ahab and the children of Israel influencing Jezebel and the Phoenicians, the opposite happened. Until the worship of the true God was being pushed to the margins until there were only a handful of people who even claimed that Jehovah was the only God. But there was one prophet, wasn't there? His name was Elijah. And led by the Lord, Elijah caused a showdown on Mount Carmel. And remember they built that altar there and he had them douse it with water after the, the priest of Baal had tried to get their God to cast down fire from heaven, to no avail. And then 
After they had doused the altar with idol, Elijah prayed and God sent fire from heaven and consumed the animal sacrifices and even lapped up the water in the ditch, the scripture says. What had Elijah said to the people before that happened? He said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And of course, what did they do? They took those hundreds of Baal prophets and they killed them saying that we repent and we're going to go back to worshiping the true God. But they didn't kill Jezebel. And Elijah feared her so much because she was out for his head. He went into hiding. And out there in the wilderness, Elijah began to throw a pity party. And he said, God, I'm the only one left that still loves you. Do you remember? And God said, no, you're not. There are 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee. And we see that here in the church at Thyatira. For all of their wickedness, there was a handful, a remnant that we're going to see in just a moment that were going to serve the true God. But what was the sin of Thyatira? They had given in to tolerance. Now, tolerance you'd have to admit is probably the highest virtue in our wicked culture today. That is to allow everyone and everything to do their own thing, no matter how it's a front to God and to scripture and not say a word about it. That's what we call being tolerant. And it seems to me the only thing that's not tolerated in our culture is biblical Christianity. But we are called upon to tolerate every kind of vice and wickedness in the world. And sometimes, even in a church, one's strength can become its downfall. And I think that's what happened in Thyatira. Go back and remember the good things they were doing. The first thing Jesus said, I know your love. And sometimes we hide behind love in the name of tolerance. I've heard parents see their children on a trajectory that they know is going to ruin their life, and they'll say, I love him too much to stop him. No, you don't. If you love him, you would stop him or her. I, I, I've seen churches, we read about them in the New Testament, who have open wickedness and unconfessed sin among them, and everybody knows it, and they say, we just love each other so much, we turn the other way. That's not love. Remember, that's what was happening in the church at Corinth. Among their many other problems, they had a young man in their church who was sleeping with his stepmother something that not even the pagans would tolerate, but it was being tolerate, tolerated in the church of the living God under the name of love. And Paul wrote them and rebuked them and says, you've got to deal with this sin. Well, a similar thing apparently has happened in the church at Thyatira. There's this woman, and I don't think her name was really Jezebel, do you? I think it's a symbolism of, of hearkening back to the Old Testament about how Israel almost was destroyed because they tolerated wicked practices among them. And so this woman, who's referred to as Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess. And we get the implication that God didn't send her, right? She calls herself a prophetess. And so I think that's a rebuke against any church who would lower their standards of church leadership in the name of pragmatism. That this person says they're called, even though they don't meet the sniff test, even though they don't meet the qualifications laid down clearly in Scripture, because they say they're speaking for God, we better listen. Now you put that against what the Apostle Paul says, that uh, when someone preaches, he says, if, if, if even uh, an angel from heaven teaches a false gospel, don't you believe them? So this woman was coming. She had incredible influence, apparently, uh, 
in that church. And what was she doing? She was leading my bond service, that is true Christians, to go astray and to commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had some pretty strong words for those who would do harm to his little ones. Remember what he says? It would better that a millstone would be tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea than you would harm one of my little ones. Now, we typically apply that to child abusers, and I think that's a legitimate application. But I don't think Jesus was speaking primarily about little children there. He was speaking about his little children, the ones he died for, the church. And if he says, if you seek to lead those in the church astray and into sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone which weighed thousands of pounds tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea. And so these are words of, of judgment. And yet in the midst of these words of judgment, this woman who was trying to co-opt pagan immorality, by the way, I think motivated financially. You see, that's what Jezebel and Ahab did. They merged their two cultures, Judaism and, and Phoenician paganism together because they thought it would mutually benefit them, right? Both of them would benefit from the trade that would go on and they'd both grow wealthy. And, and I suspect that's what's happening in Thyatira. This woman is saying, look, we can come together on the Lord's Day Sunday morning and worship Jesus, but during the week we can carry on these immoral practices down at the trade guild and we can prosper not only spiritually, which is what the Lord cares about, but also financially. We can be rich in this life by playing along with the world system. And then when we get to heaven, we'll join heaven for all of eternity. And Jesus is saying, no, he will not tolerate it. And because he will not tolerate it, he's about to bring judgment. But did you notice how gracious the Lord is? Look at verse 21. His gracious invitation right before his Severe rebuke. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. As wicked and as sinful as this woman was, the gracious Lord Jesus is merciful, isn't he? The Bible says he's slow to anger, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the Savior. Now, how long he gave her, we don't know, but we know it was enough because he does all things well. And that time is over. Sometimes I hear people say that God's patience is infinite. And they mean well by that, but that's simply not true. If God's patience were infinite, he would never judge sin. God is very patient, but there comes an end to his patience, doesn't there? He gives opportunity after opportunity, but at some point the window of opportunity closes and he says, now is the time for judgment. Apparently that's where this woman was. He had given her time to repent, and she does not want to repent. She's not going to repent, and so now comes the severe rebuke in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. And there's a play on words there. He's comparing her to an adulteress. And if you look at the Old Testament, that is the imagery that God most often used to describe Israel when they kept going back to these pagan gods. God would picture himself as a faithful, loving husband who had taken a woman and he'd give her everything she ever wanted. He fed her well. 
He'd given her a wonderful place to live. He gave her clothes and perfumes, and she played the harlot, is the word we see in the Old Testament. That she went out to these other lovers, that is, these pagan gods, and, and she committed adultery with them. And that's the picture here of this woman in the church, this Jezebel. Rather than being faithful to the Lord Jesus, who is the bridegroom of the church, she had committed adultery on her bed of wickedness, and he says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Instead of a bed of adultery, it's now a bed of sickness. And not only her, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, see, he is gracious again, isn't he? Even though it's time to judge, he still holds open that window of opportunity for those who were led astray by her, that if you'll repent, I will forgive you, and I will restore you. Well, we need to be uh, careful here, lest we read too much into it. Look at what it says in verse 23. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, it's not speaking of literal children there. Remember what I said, Jesus said, that if any do any harm to my little ones, that is converts, those that have come to faith in me, it's better than a millstone be cast around his neck and cast into the depths of the sea. These little ones, these children of Jezebel are her converts. Those that have started living like she lives. It's not just that he's going to remove this Jezebel from their midst, he's also going to remove from their midst all of those who've been infected with her sinfulness. And yet he says this, I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Here's we know what we know about God as judge. We can trust him to do what is right, can't we? Sometimes when we look at our own judicial system, and certainly the judicial systems of other countries, we know that sometimes that they can be infected, can't they? They can be um, given over to vice and greed and, and bribery. If you've ever traveled to other parts of the world, you know that that's just the way it works. Judicial system is based upon bribery. It's based upon uh, who knows who. But the judicial system in our country is supposed to be blind, isn't it? But we know it's not always that way because we're humans. Even the best judges are limited. They're, they're not God. They, they can't know perfectly the heart and mind of every person, so they do the best that they can do. God's not like that. He's not limited to what he can observe with his senses. He's omniscient, isn't he? He knows everything that we do, say, think, even knows the motivation of our heart. And so don't worry that when it comes time for judgment that he's going to overdo it or underdo it. Just know that he's always going to judge perfectly. And he says so. He's going to judge each one individually according to what they've done and what they haven't done. Now, that leads us finally to uh, this remnant's promise. Remember I told you that wherever you go, no matter how few, there's always this remnant of faithful people. Even in churches, such as the one in Thyatira that's seemingly wholly given over to sin, there's still a few who are remaining faithful. Let's read about them, verse 24. By the way, you might have noticed this is a longer letter than the others. It's been noted by many those who write commentaries, that this is the, the longest letter to seemingly the most insignificant church. Verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, that is the teaching of Jezebel, 
who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. So he says, look, I'm not talking to you. You don't have to worry about me coming in judgment. Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm talking to these who are following the teachings of Jezebel. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He says, don't count your chickens yet. You haven't made it to the end either. You continue on until I come. I think there's some interesting words here. He says, you've not known the deep things of Satan. There are a number of sects and cults and philosophies that emerged in the first century church that began to pervert the pure gospel that Jesus gave to his apostles. One of those was Gnosticism. You might know that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And the Gnostics were those who claimed to be Christians on one hand, but said, we have this deeper knowledge than the average Christian, right? And so we have this insight into the supernatural world uh, that most people can't ever come to imagine. And so they had elevated themselves. Well, a similar thing was happening with the things of Satan. And I think it may be one in the same because you had this group who were saying, we can get by with sinfulness where you can't because we've attained to some higher level. I heard about a very famous evangelist this week, in fact, in, in an article. Uh, and if I said his name, you, you'd all know who it was. And it's come out that this evangelist was deep into sexual sin. And the ladies that he abused all said he said the same thing. I deserve this because I'm doing so much for the Lord. I'm traveling all over the world. I'm writing books. I, I'm, I'm leading in so many ways. And so God's given me a special dispensation. I get to indulge my flesh in this one area because I'm so faithful in other areas. Don't you believe that for a minute? He does not give dispensations to sin. And so he's saying to the remnant, look, you've been faithful. I see that you've not given in to those who says because they have this special knowledge, they have been given a dispensation to sin, but hold fast what you have. That is stay alert until I come or you die. And then we have these promises. Isn't that the pattern we've seen unfold throughout these letters? You have the greeting from Jesus. It was not a friendly greeting this time. Then you have a mixture of commendation and rebuke. He says, look, got some good things going for you. You have love for one another, love for me. There's faith, there's perseverance in many of you. And yet then the rebuke is you tolerate this woman Jezebel. And not only were some of them tolerating her, some of them were following her into sin. And then you always see at the end, he gives the promise for the faithful. And it's a longer promise than in the other letters Beginning in verse 26, he says, he who overcomes, the overcomers are those who persevere to the end with their faith intact. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, this is an interesting verse. What does it mean that God, Christ, is going to give to Christians authority over the nations? That word nation there means Gentiles. Well, I take it to me in the, in the thousand-year millennial kingdom where Christ is going to come and rule and reign physically upon the earth, he is going to distribute to his faithful ones areas for which they have authority over. 
Now, some have said, well, this is just a spiritual meaning. It just means he's going to grant rewards, and that's one possibility. But it's so specific, you're going to have authority over the Gentiles. Now, most Christians don't have a lot of authority, particularly in the areas of the world where there's persecution. Uh, the, the Chinese church doesn't have much authority. In fact, just the opposite. They are put under the boot heel of communism day after day. And that's the way it is most parts of the world. But when Jesus comes to rule and reign, he's going to delegate and share his authority with those people to rule and reign over that millennial kingdom. Verse 27 says, he, that's Christ, shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's, that's judgment. And the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. I also have received authority from my father. That is, he has the right to delegate that authority to his churches and to his little ones because that authority has been granted him from the Father. Where is that? It's in Philippians chapter 2. Remember when the Apostle Paul is describing the humility of the Lord Jesus? He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not hold his authority in heaven tightly, but emptied himself, kenosis in the Greek. He poured himself out and became a bondservant. But what does he say at the end of chapter 2? One day, every knee will bow of things in heaven, that is the angels in heaven, of things on earth, that is all human flesh, and things under the earth, the demonic forces, are all going to bow their knee to what? The authority of Jesus, and they're going to proclaim him King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says, I'm going to delegate some of that authority to you. So you don't have any authority now, and it seems you're powerless. Seems like everything's going against you, but it's temporary. Just as he said to churches earlier in the chapter, you're suffering church at Smyrna. You're being persecuted. Some of your best and brightest are being killed like your pastor. But it's temporary. If you'll endure to the end, there won't be more suffering. He's saying to the church at Thyatira, you're coming under pressure from the trade guilds and from the government and from the Roman authorities. But if you'll bear up under that pressure, you'll never have it in eternity. And then he makes this wonderful promise in verse 28. And... In addition to that, I will give him the morning star. I'll give that person who endures to the end the morning star. Well, who's the morning star? That's the Lord himself, isn't it? Just as he said in, in the previous letter, if you'll bear up until the end, I will give you manna from heaven. We said is the bread of life. That's Christ himself. That is eternal intimacy with Jesus. That is the greatest gift that Christ can give, isn't it? I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. We were talking about this gentleman that I mentioned earlier who had fallen into grave sexual sin. And remember that he says the reason he could do that is because he'd served the Lord so faithfully for so many years. And my pastor friend says that is no different than Islam or Mormonism. Because Islam and Mormonism teach, hear this, that the reward for faithfulness is sex. That's how the Muslims motivate their young men to fly airplanes into our buildings. They are promised that if they're killed doing that in the name of Allah, they will have 50 virgins in heaven. And so they're taught that the reward for faithfulness to God is sex. Jesus says the reward for faithfulness to God is Jesus. We get to be with him forever and ever. And so if anyone ever tells you that the reward for faithfulness to Christ is something in this world, 
disavow them, get away from them, don't believe them. They're a Jezebel. I will give him the morning star. Jesus is described as the morning star three different places in the Bible. Then he says, verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's to us, dear friends. This is an open letter addressed specifically to what was going on at the church of Thyatira, but we all get to learn from it, don't we? What did Jesus say that Gregory read? The wise man is the one who hears the words of Jesus and heeds it. And then let me, just by way of application, make, make a few points. One I made in the introduction. There are no insignificant places and insignificant Christians, right? Just because you don't live in a large city, um, I, I think we, we need to be careful about this in our own denomination. We, we've put all of our resources in the big cities, but let's not forget God's got his people everywhere. And one of the things that our church is going to focus on, Lord willing, is reaching some of those mid-sized and rural areas with the gospel that sometimes are forgotten about. Those are not insignificant people to God. Some of the greatest Christians come from those areas, and let's not forget it. Um, number two, we need to be careful that our greatest strength doesn't become our downfall. What was the greatest strength of the church at Thyatira? It was their love. That was the greatest strength of the church at Corinth, remember? They said, we love one another so much that we would never call one another on our sin. We'll just turn a blind eye to that sin and pretend it, it doesn't exist. And what would you say is the greatest strength of First Baptist Church of Keller? You don't have to call it out loud. I think we have a lot of strengths. But I think one of our greatest strengths is our unity. Some of you have been here long enough to remember that hasn't always been the case going back several decades. And so because we do have sweet fellowship now and people love one another, we want to guard that, don't we? But we don't want to let anything interfere with our unity. And so sometimes if we're not careful, that means we will tolerate sin in the name of unity. Well, I'm not going to say anything about what's going on there because if, if I did, it would fracture the church. Friends, there are some hills that are worth dying on. And I think we need to be wise. And I think that uh, we, we need to be humble. Jesus said, make sure that the beam is out of your own eye before you start taking the speck out of your brothers. But, but our church needs to be loving enough to hold a high standard of purity. But you know what happens when you start holding a high standard of purity? A lost and dying world is going to turn on you. And we're already seeing it in our culture. Do you know what happens if you have a standard of church membership and you have a standard of purity that you hold to? The lost and dying world is going to say you're a bigot and you're a hypocrite. Did you read in the paper this week about a local Christian school, I mean within a stone's throw of here, who had the audacity to have a student code of, code of conduct that they actually upheld? And when one of their students was expelled for a clear violation of that, the parents went to the papers and they went to the news and I followed it, and it went all over the world like wildfire. How dare anyone claiming to be Christian have any sort of moral standards? And I say, praise the Lord for a school in our area that will hold to its moral standards. And may our churches have the same kind of backbone to heed the words of Jesus, not just to hear them as a historical interest, 
But to view these as the very words of God, a wise man, a wise church is one who hears the word of God and obeys it. May the Lord give us the grace to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, these things happened a long time ago, and if we're not careful, we'll think them unrelated to us. And yet that last verse is ringing in my ears. He who has ears to hear what the Spirit of God says, let him hear it. Father, give us those listening and attentive ears. Give us humility, Father, to to not go that path of the church at Thyatira, although they had many things they're doing well. Ultimately, their greatest strength became their downfall. They, they hid behind love and allowed immorality to destroy their church. Father, I pray you wouldn't let that happen here. And Father, may we speak the truth with love always. Help us to be merciful and long-suffering and slow to anger as, as Jesus was. But when the time comes to to act, Father. Help us to, to have the boldness to do that. In love, for the glory of Jesus. Father, I pray you would guard our fellowship here. We do thank you for the unity that we've enjoyed these many years. We don't want to see anything disrupt that, but Lord, we know that only true unity comes based on Christ and his teachings, not based on some false peace that comes from inaction. So, Father, help us to do what we know to do is right. Help us to trust you in the outcome. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.